Well, we cover a lot of ground at Instead London, but I think this is the first time we've ever been talking about the uses of technology to assess ancient antiquities. Very interesting one coming up for you today. Matthew Grant here, your usual host of Instead London, and welcome back, or we're delighted you could join us if this is your first podcast. This week, I'm off, so Robin Mertens is in the hot seat talking to Elizabeth Marston, the co-founder of Sitara Heritage. Really interesting one coming up. And with two people who have such a great love of wine, not surprising that the conversation goes off track a little bit. So let's hear from Robin and Elizabeth. So I've got Elizabeth Marston uh, with me today. Elizabeth, you answer to Liz most of the time. Is that is that right? I do. Either is just fine. Now, you were introduced to me and then um, I had a look about what you had been up to. And I saw the words Cambridge University, co-founder, wine. And I thought well, you probably might have quite a lot in common. So I've been anxious to get hold of you and, and have this chat ever since. Now, let's, let's start with the wine bit. You, you own your own Napa Valley estate. I, I, I mean, I'm, what, how, and, um, you know, how can you get that lucky? <laughs> well, Robert, it's wonderful to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Um, so yes, indeed, Cambridge wine, many, uh, synergies here. So in terms of the, the Napa Valley wine side, um, my parents actually started the business over 50 years ago. They were lucky enough to come up to Napa in what in California we call the early days. So I've been part of that that journey for about about 16 years now. I can't imagine that I would ever have been tempted away from running a Napa Valley estate. But in 2016, it's Cambridge, and, and you're doing, this is fair to say this is niche, classical ancient Mediterranean New Eastern studies and archaeology. Was that always a passion of yours? It is, actually. Um, my passion has always been ancient civilization, archaeology. It really started with my A-levels, where I read classical studies, and then I've been hooked ever since. Even further back, probably as a child, with mythology. But I went back and I read um, classical archaeology. I had a master's, and then that wasn't enough. Um, so I immediately started an MPhil in Egyptology, another passion of mine. And presumably that's what takes you to the British Museum. What, 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 what were you doing there? Was that just part of the continuous learning? So, yes, I started under my MPhil, where um, a few of us were invited to do some um, research as part of our studies with the Circulating Artifacts Project, which is in the Department of Egypt and Sudan. And they're documenting objects on the open market, uh, mainly, of course, Egyptian. And that was something, it was an incredible experience that as soon as I finished my MPhil, I came back to them and said, I'm here. I would love to continue working, researching with you. So all in all, it's been about over two and a half years I've been working with them. And that's really what led to this next chapter um, for me was understanding this. I really only understood the tip of the iceberg of this problem. And I've been trying to find a way to merge my passion for archaeology with something that I could do in the real world, utilizing my business background. So tell us what the problem was and how you came about it. I mean, one minute you're curating and, and researching, and then, and then you must at some point thought, hey, this is a business. What, what, what was that about? You know, it was really at lunch one day at the staff canteen at the BM, and um, we're doing this incredible work that, uh, you know, a number of um, different specialists, everybody has their own areas. I was doing a lot of work on Ptolemaic coffins and cartonnage, and everything's by hand. So it's incredibly 
well done, thorough. But I kept thinking to myself, there must be a way that we can bring in some technology. And that became incredibly exciting, thinking about merging kind of the dusty world of archaeology, cutting edge technology became very, very interesting to me. And additionally, that you can help solve this global crisis of uh, the illicit antiquities world. And this is a market that has fraud. I mean, um, there's part of this around, you know, provenance and, and the certainty that it is what it says it, it is rather than, I don't know, I don't know whether it's easy to fake Egyptian, you know, something or others. But, it, but is, that, is that some of the issue? Yes. Yeah, so there are two major problems within the illicit antiquities market. One is fakes, fraud. And that is a very complicated thing. Some of these are very well done. What we have really focused on is the illicit ownership. You know, how did this object come to be? And really abiding by the, you know, the gold standard, which is the UNESCO Convention of 1970. So it depends on the ratification by that home country. So for the most part, by the time that home country, say Egypt, has ratified nothing that has been um, excavated after that date should be leaving the home country. So therefore, it's the red flag, it's illicit. So I'm keen to know more about uh, Satera Heritage. I understand how it started, but tell me exactly what it is as a business, what the tech does. When you pitch it, how do you pitch it? At its core, it's an insure tech product. And then we have different components that face different sectors. Part of it faces the heritage and law enforcement sector. So they're given tools that are usable um, in the field, so to speak, where they have um, everything would be usable on a smartphone. So they have um, a software app that would help determine the, you know, at-risk typologies instantaneously. So something's crossing a border, they can snap a picture. Is this something that that should you know, be red flagged? Is this suspicious? And then a secondary component, kind of the three key tools on the heritage side, are um, that then there'd be a single portal search to known stolen item databases. So is this something that already exists in a previous record? So, for example, Interpol, the FBI, the Carabinieri, they all have their own federated silos of data. So ideally, we would have a a zero-knowledge-proof approach where it would be um, a yes-no query that we know, okay, this does exist on one of these, and then we would connect them directly with that person, say it's the FBI or so forth. And nothing like this exists right now. So anybody, you know, just an individual wishing to do due diligence on an object that they want to purchase, you know, say from a very, you know, reputable dealer or auction house, it's very difficult to check these things. It's essentially building irrevocable digital identities associated with each object. For example, Christie's London is selling something to Sotheby's in New York. What typically happens now is that will sit at the border until they can bring an expert in that can verify it, look through hundreds of pages of, of paperwork for things are usually shipped in a, in a collection of various objects. I've heard something like 200 pages of documents, and it can take weeks, if not months. So with this digital fingerprint, essentially, it'll be tied to digital files and data and then make it that this can move more freely as, a, as an asset on the market. I'm hearing in that, you know, an insurance-specific application, then a, a second part, which is, um, as you say, sort of law enforcement, that's a data element. That, so, so that's a huge sort of crowdsourcing effort, isn't it? You, you have to go and talk to a lot of people and say, look, for the 
for the social good that this is going to do, can we all pool our data and provide access to the right people at the right time? That sounds like quite a big task to me. Indeed. It's something that will be built over time and certainly in collaboration. And that's something that, you know, is actually I find tremendously exciting is the opportunity to, to all work together. There tend to be a lot of kind of individual projects that are out there. And a lot of these tend to be grant funded. So the longevity doesn't necessarily exist. And that's where it becomes very interesting. And that's been a key thing for Soterra is to have that long term sustainability. But you're certainly right. This will take a while to have that data. And that's where it's nice to have these tools that are the kind of early stage that help us have a product to market. Another benefit within this for the insurance sector is specifically for species insurance. When high value objects are in in motion, a major thing for the insurance market is museum collections when they have an exhibition Mm. and they're moving high value objects between. And so it's a set duration of time. And to have Satera with a digital identity on this, you can track in real time, you know the route that it's going, you know that the same object that left is the same one that's arriving and so forth. I know there are some fears around substitution, although it's not a major problem we understand from further research. But if there's damage patterns, that sort of thing, that we can we can help create, um, create further data on that side as well. And that third part I really like, that's a sort of digital identity, a sort of fingerprint, as, as you called it. How are you doing that? We've done a number of um, different proof of concepts. And we're now on the next round of this, but essentially it's um, using image recognition software. So that's that technology that's not actually recognizing, say, your face, but it's recognizing certain points and creating a pattern. And with antiquities, you know, obviously it's it's well before, you know, industrial production. So everything for the most part is unique. And so that's something that we're testing. And so far, everything is is affirming that everything has a, a unique pattern that can be recognized through image recognition software. And then we're building identities around that using, you know, blockchain. And, you know, the, the key thing that we're finding is using existing technology. This problem has been solved in many other sectors, but it just hasn't been utilized in this sector. And that's where it's incredibly interesting. You think about traceability, where you have a cow, and then how do you trace the beef that's on someone's plate at that restaurant? So all of this exists and then just utilizing this within um, the antiquities market. How do you then get started for something like that? You get the tech built and then you go along to somebody and you say, right, I now need to fingerprint all of your Egyptology or something. You know, it's interesting. Everybody has their own policies. We're partnering with a number of different uh, museums and institutions that we'll, we'll be able to announce publicly soon, I hope. And that is an amazing source of um, collaboration that will really increase the database and also training for for the AI for that engine, which, of course, takes quite a bit. And we're partnering, too, with existing projects within the sector. And they've done a lot of that sort of research and data gathering. So we we actually have quite a quite a bit accomplished on that front. It makes your fundraising quite interesting because because you actually have so many different stakeholders and so many people who would benefit from this. You ought to have, particularly given the social good element of it, kind of a, a big pool uh, of potential investors to to fish in. Are you are you fundraising anytime soon? Yes, actually, we are. Um, we're just about to enter um, our pre-seed investment round. 
And that'll really help us build the core products and take this to the next level. And then ideally bring um, our initial product to market later this year. So it's it's a very exciting time as we enter that and working with our partners. And really our long-term vision is, is to be the gold standard in heritage and insurance that legitimate objects on the open market would have this Sutera digital identity. The idea being that that you you know would wouldn't insure or you would insure at a lower value if um, if it didn't exist on the known database that we've created. So that be, that becomes I think very very helpful and also solves um or begins to solve the major problem of illicit antiquities. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to do, isn't there? I mean, I don't need at all persuading that it's a really great idea, and neither will neither will <laughs> anybody who doesn't think it's a good idea. Uh, and it's doubly a good idea if no one's done it before, which they patently haven't. But it'll take time, I guess, and 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 therefore money. I mean, you you have quite a lot of things to pull together. So I guess, as you say, you do your proof of concept, you prove it's working. You, what what do you see as the next sort of two or three steps along the journey? Well, our long-term plan is, um, you know, creating that, uh, that data engine that can provide the instant risk reports based on specific items. And again, being the industry standard. So we become the database of legitimate high value items. And then, as I mentioned, developing the, the key tools, um, for the heritage protection, social impact side of the business. And then we see kind of the next phase two is continuing to meet with insurers who are interested in using data within their underwriting, kind of the actuarial side of it, and then to meet also with investors and angels with backgrounds in insurance, interest in collecting, interest in heritage, who understand the aims and importantly are find this compelling and find this exciting. So we're going to put out a call out to the insurance industry that it wants to help with the better insurance of antiquities. Anyone with a passion uh, in the area and and ideally all of those things with a bit of money tucked away that they would like to invest in a nice social good business like this so that's the that's that's so that's our target market we will see what instant london we can do about that oh indeed wonderful thank you and i should say too we're starting with antiquities is it's really the most challenging but we plan to expand using this technology to further high-value objects that are difficult, that are a challenge right now for the insurance market as well. So you clearly don't mind a bit of education having returned to Cambridge. In in these few years since you started this business, what's, what have you learned? What are the most interesting insights that you've gained the last 12 months or so? There's such a passion behind this. And it's amazing to, well, you can't walk into a meeting, but log on to a meeting these days and have these conversations. And people are incredibly collaborative and excited. And something that I hadn't personally realized really until my work with um, Circulating Artifacts at the British Museum was the scope of this problem. You know, we don't really think about it as as a crime. And I was really surprised to learn that um, in 2018 alone, that Interpol registered nearly 100,000 items of cultural heritage and nearly half a million were seized by law enforcement agencies. To put that in perspective, the value of the global art market, including antiquities, in 2019 was 64.1 billion, and the market of illicit art and antiquities is 4.5 to 7 billion. And another thing on top of this is how much of this funds terrorism. And that was something that I hadn't realized and this is something that is uh, exacerbated with the pandemic, that a lot of sites, a lot of museums, 
and so forth don't have the same security, the same protection. And then there's also a misconception that if you're buying this lovely little object from Syria, you think you're saving heritage, or in fact, you're creating a continuous demand. This is not a new problem. This is actually an age-old problem. And I remember looking at um, records of papyri dating to 1100 BC that was documenting the trial of several men who it was apparently a common thing. Priests or some of the men involved with burials would know exactly where the most valuable things were in a burial. And so sometimes even the night that the pharaoh was interred, they'd go back in and steal those things. So this is really, we're attempting to solve an age-old problem, but the difference here is we're using modern technology. And that's another side of it, I would say as well. A lot of times the criminal side of it tends to be more high-tech, better organized, and more collaborative. So that's something that we'd like to really transform by bringing in um, existing technologies. Again, I love the, the image of kind of wonderful, classic, dusty archaeology with our, our cutting-edge um, advancements in uh, machine learning, AI, image, image recognition uh, technology to transform this problem. It's a recurring theme that, I mean, if you, if you examine what goes on in cyber, it's a, it's a constant battle between the quality of the efforts of the, of the, of the, of the technology that the crooks have in, in, in an attempt to hack, which is, has always to be outsmarted at any given moment in time by those providing cyber security and they constantly battle it out. It's eye opening, isn't it? It's been an interesting thing too in the last year or so, um, where social media has made, played a major part in the sale of illicit antiquities, art, and so forth. Um, and you really see how easy it is to sell something from one chat group in Dubai that ends up in, you know, in Rome or Paris. So it's becoming incredibly convenient, easy, and there are a lot of ways to kind of hide original identity and sources. And then that's a problem with Facebook, with the well-intention of shutting down some of these sales groups that drives things underground. And then that becomes incredibly challenging. There's a lot to this issue. And if we can tackle this one part, you know, we're just getting started. And this is our our beginning. Um, Tara can become that gold standard if these tools can transform the way that the heritage sector can protect that law enforcement and border control who aren't meant to have any sort of um, specialism in ancient artifacts from a country and give them these tools for success, then we can really make a difference. And all be in this together. As, uh, you know, UNESCO says, uh, you know, what, how much for the price of a nation? Once heritage is lost, it's, it's gone. It's gone forever from the sands of time. So there's definitely a sense of urgency. I've got two more questions for you. The first is, how can we help you? If we find somebody interested, how do they get hold of you? What do you suggest? Come through us? Either that way would be wonderful or, us directly, we're SaharaHeritage.com. I'm Elizabeth at SaharaHeritage.com, and we welcome, as we've been talking about, you know, many different sectors and different facets. There's, there's really a role and a place for us all to work on this from the insurance side to the heritage side. So we'd be delighted to connect. It sounds to me like you've got a lot to do. Now, let's go back to Napa Valley. 2021 going to be a very good year or not? We shall see. Right now we're in a drought, yeah. so that's never a good thing. But that's pretty standard these days for uh, for California. But we're all in, we're in the aftermath of uh, some devastating wildfires last fall, 
I think 85% of the harvest was lost in Napa Valley because uh, nobody could pick from from the smoke taint or from actual damage to vines. So Napa is is going through a, a rebirth at this moment. Everybody still believes in it's a, it's cool. still a beautiful place. <laughs> I, did, 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 the, did the master of the state get affected by this? So sadly, we were. It happened very, very quickly. We're, we're up on Spring Mountain, so on the western side of Napa Valley on the hills, and it swept through in about three days. Most of that was quite devastated. So personally, we lost our winery, our homes, and had significant damage to the vineyards. Wow. Oh, that's terrible. Wow. I can't imagine anything worse. You know, it's so funny. These things, these things are, for us insurers, they are losses that we, you know, we do the data. We kind of, there have been, there have been wildfires in California. We very rarely uh, are able to kind of personalize them in that way. Um, and um, I, I had no idea when we started this. Well, good luck sorting all of that out. Oh, and, thank you. No, an opportunity luck. for creative uh, approaches, indeed. <laughs> uh, and, and really good luck with with Soterra Heritage. I, I, I mean, I won't be alone in thinking that it's an absolutely fantastic idea. I, I personally love your uh, passion for it. I, I think <laughs> founders and investors will like that too. Uh, and, and we would love to do what we can to help you. So, look, thank you for joining us and and and, thank you very much. and telling us a really uh, a really great story. And we wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much, Rodman. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. And of course, if you want to know what we're up to at Instead London, you can find everything we're doing on the website, London. Events coming up in the autumn. Uh, start booking for those face-to-face once again, still doing digital. And of course, now churning out our regular reports. You can contact me, Matthew Grant, through LinkedIn or any of us. Hello at Instead. London. Do tell us what you're up to and great to hear what you think of what we are doing. And we'll be back next week.